Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by David Pritchard once again. He is the country manager for the Philippines for the Nile Group. They are an Australian-based online retailer. David is joining me. He's, he's been on the podcast quite a few times now, and we're actually trying something a little bit different in this episode. There's a topic we come across quite often in outsourcing, and it is the ethics of outsourcing. There are two main objections to outsourcing. One is that it takes jobs away. It steals jobs from onshore people. And the other one is that it exploits cheap labor abroad. It is paying people uh, an unsatisfactory salary for doing work that should be done by people that are better paid. So these are two really core objections to outsourcing. I have faced these objections the entire time that I have been working in outsourcing. So it's good to sort of explore these objections. And uh, obviously, we're preaching to the converted between uh, uh, David and myself. Um, But hopefully, it is valuable to explore these objections and work through them a little bit uh, philosophically. Now, David is also uh, a He's into objectivism. Uh, he runs the Ayn Rand uh, Society here. If you're not aware of uh, Ayn Rand, then um, we introduce it in the podcast. So uh, hopefully this podcast is interesting and valuable. And certainly it's a topic which I think needs to be addressed is the, the sort of objections and the ethics of uh, outsourcing and how it impacts uh, the world. Uh, and everyone in it. So hopefully you enjoy and please uh, give us any feedback. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs and we can help you too. We cover everything from offshore business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations, and fully managed services. If you are already outsourcing, about to start, or are somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your offshore operations. The Outsource Accelerator Marketplace now covers over 3,000 outsourcing firms representing a global workforce of over 5 million people. We also host this leading outsourcing podcast, publish inside outsourcing, and have over 15,000 pages of content on the site. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Also, if you find this podcast interesting or valuable, please share it. We have now produced hundreds of episodes featuring the outsourcing world's most prominent luminaries. Please show your support by sharing this podcast today. David, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you, Derek. Thank you so much for having me back. This must be my fourth time or fifth time or something like that. Yeah, I think you're the, uh, you're, you're the, you've been on the most. I'm sure. I'm sure you have, actually. So uh, it's, well, it's always, great to I'll always back. have that honor. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, of course. I mean, there's, uh, you've, you've got to keep up your, your performance, though, David. You never <laughs> know. You've got to get a call back. So let's see how we go. We're going to actually try a new format, a new topic. We're, we're going to talk about the ethics of outsourcing of all things, David. And I actually find this, you suggested this, and I actually find this a fascinating topic because, uh, you know, it is if outsourcing is mentioned, then either side of the coin of ethics actually comes up so, so commonly. And it's one of the biggest objections to outsourcing. And there are two main objections. One of them is the, 
you know, it's not fair. It exploits the workers that are working for, for relatively a low salary, in inverted commas. And then the other argument or objection is that outsourcing takes jobs, you know, and, and this is a hugely emotive topic for a lot of the sort of uh, uh, right leaning people of certain nations. And, you know, as Outsource Accelerator actually does advertising overseas and promotes outsourcing, commonly we get, uh, you know, commented that we are terrorists, we are traitors, you know, and it is really quite an emotional Terrorists, topic. my word. Yeah, 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 yeah. It all comes out, it all comes out, you know. And um, so it outsourcing is an incredibly emotive topic. So I think it's it's really interesting to to take it head on and explore the ethics of outsourcing. So let's see how we go. David, I want to first get an introduction of you, but then also we're, we're going to talk about um, the the framework and it is objectivism, which is uh, Ayn Rand's uh, philosophy. Um, so we'll kind of provide a bit of an introduction to those and then we'll get into it. But first, David, you, just, uh, just remind the audience who, who you are. All right, me. So I'm David Pritchard. Um, I'm the country manager for the Philippines of uh, the Nile Group, which is an Australian-based online retailer. Uh, and my basic job is to oversee all our operations here in the Philippines, which is servicing our parent company in Australia, so doing customer support, back-end, and all those kind of functions. We've got um, a headcount of somewhere in the 40 to 50 range, and I've been based here in the Philippines for I think approaching eight years now, um, with a with a family here and very much with roots laid down. Absolutely love the place, love the culture, um, love the work I do, and um, love being part of the uh, outsourcing industry in this country. So that's, nice. I guess, me. Yeah, fantastic. And I, I do always um, really respect your points of view on things. You are you're a learned man, David, and you know, especially in in terms of managing teams. Uh, and you know, with the application of managing Filipino teams and things like that. So, well, uh, well you flatter me so. That's very kind of you to say. No, and also, you know, I, I follow you on Facebook, David. The things you say, the things you say, you're a learned, learned man. And um, of course, regarding Ayn Rand as well. So, uh, let's move on to that. Who is Ayn Rand, and what is objectivism? Okay, so Ayn Rand um, was a uh, American philosopher. She was of uh, Russian origin. Um, but she spent most of her life in the US. And she's best known as a, a novelist of fiction. So she wrote some very famous novels, uh, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Um, but over the course of her life, she developed a, a comprehensive uh, system of belief, uh, a philosophical um, theory, I guess, called objectivism. That was the name she gave it. Uh, and it is a philosophy that is founded on uh, reason, rights, uh, individualism, and uh, self-esteem. Um, and it's, it stands in contrast to most other systems of belief, be they religious or other forms of philosophy. Uh, controversial at times, um, but also um, fascinating. And in my case, uh, it's, the, it's the philosophy that I essentially have adopted. I agree with it in most of its main facets. Um, and I view most things through a framework that is consistent with objectivism. I'm by no means an expert to talk on objectivism. I'm not an objectivist scholar, um, but I do consider myself an objectivist and an adherent of objectivism. So on a question like this, a question like uh, what outsourcing is and, and the deeper philosophical meaning of it, um, my point of reference is going to be an objectivist one. And I think it's an interesting take uh, to have on a topic like uh, like outsourcing. So I was delighted when um, we came up with that idea, I think originally half joking, but um, we did actually realize it was a good idea. So uh, I'm very excited to see how this discussion goes and to start chewing on some of these issues. And objectivism, unlike, you know, a lot of philosophies really sort of, I suppose, provide guidance for life and living, whereas objectivism is, is slightly more leaning towards the kind of economic models of life and society it, it's more sort of commenting on how to build a society as opposed to how to live a good life and go to heaven sort of thing isn't it um well it certainly doesn't have any idea about going to heaven because um it's it's an atheistic philosophy i guess you could say there's not a it, it, there's um 
uh, objectivism believes that the only objectivism, I guess, stipulates that the only reality there is is the reality of the world we live in. So it's not a religious philosophy, and it's not one that's ultimately compatible with religion. Um, but it does answer generally all the questions of life that you mentioned. Um, it does have a, a position on them. It's more than just economics. Um, it is about how to lead the good life. There's an objectivist theory on art. There's an objectivist theory on romantic love. Um, and there's our, there is objectivism on politics. And it does stray into economics. And um, I can see how it sometimes is perceived as being an economic philosophy. Um, it can be applied to economics. Um, economics is important. Um, economics is important for everyone. It's important for how societies operate, for how our own lives turn out. Um, but it is not narrowly focused on that. It's just um, one area that objectivism can be applied to. And if you were to sort of summarise it or, you know, just sort of identify the three main tenets of objectivism or the elevator pitch for it, what, what is it? What is yeah. the practical application of objectivism? Okay. So, uh, again, I'm not, I won't claim to be qualified to be a super expert on that. Um, there was a famous time when uh, Ayn Rand was asked pretty much that question. She said, can you define objectivism on one foot? And she said, um, objective reality, reason, self-interest, and capitalism. Uh, and then if she was to expand on that a little bit more, she said, um, that means um, you can't have your cake and eat it. <laughs> um, it means man is an end in, them, an end in himself. And it means that uh, liberty is, is the priority, freedom. Individual freedom is the priority in a, in a political context. Um, so objectivism is often associated with individualistic philosophy. So objectivism believes when we're talking about ethics and what the good life is, we should regard individual people as ends in themselves. Um, their purpose in life should be to flourish as individuals and to have as fulfilling a life as possible as an individual. And they're not a means towards any other group or any other goal. So that differs for, perhaps from various religious philosophies, which say that well, really, your purpose is to serve God. God's got a higher purpose for you. That's more important than your own individual desires and needs. And it also differs from certain conservative philosophies, um, nationalism that says, really, you're, you just exist to serve the nation and the, the purpose of the nation state's more important. And it differs from, uh, for example, leftist philosophies, which say, well, the, the needs of the greater group, the needs of the group outweigh the the needs or the rights of the individual. Objectivism is very focused on the individual um, and how the individual can lead the most fulfilling and flourishing life as possible. Um, that's really what the focus of objectivism is. Um, and I can't summarize it better than I guess Ayn Rand did on one foot, um, but those probably are the key tenets. And is that one of the, the sort of founding uh, kernels, I suppose, of the libertarian movement in the US, you know, and, and, and I suppose the sort of extreme right, even if I, I, I'm completely apolitical. Well, they all like but, to, yeah. But I effectively mean, where they're saying that the government should have no role or if it has any role at all, it has the most minimal role in society and you let individuals manage their own affairs. Yeah, I mean, both of the groups you mentioned um, like to mention her sometimes when it's convenient. Um, libertarianism um, did gain a lot from Ayn Rand as a movement. Um, she inspired a lot of people that in some cases went on to become libertarians or be part of that movement. She objected to it um, because she said, you can't just have a philosophy of government. You can't just have a philosophy of what government should be or what size. That has to be consistent with your underlying theory of ethics and your underlying theory of, um, of metaphysics and how the world works. Um, if you don't have that foundation, then you've just got a, a paper philosophy that's floating and can be misinterpreted um, and can go in all sorts of directions. So she believed, she believed in a lot of things that libertarians also believe, but she grounded it in a comprehensive philosophy. And that's why she didn't regard herself as a libertarian. And objectivists generally don't regard themselves as libertarians either, although on the surface they have a lot in common. Um, and, yeah, sometimes the extreme right likes to cite her. Um, and they might take parts of her philosophy that's convenient, um, but reject other ones that don't fit their philosophy quite the same. So, for example, um, I don't want to get too controversial here, but she was firmly in favour of abortion rights, for example. Um, she was generally against religious ethics. 
A lot of these things don't sit very well with the religious right. Um, but, you know, when they're talking about, when they'll take certain things from a political philosophy, you know, believing in um, small government, maybe not being particularly fond of the welfare state, they'll cherry pick those elements um, and cite them. Um, and so, yeah, you could say she influenced both of those movements, but she also stands very distinctly apart from them um, because her philosophy differs from theirs in some pretty fundamental tenets. Gosh. Okay. So I think that's uh, that's a warm up. And if anyone is still with us out there in the audience, please, please <laughs> raise, your, so. raise your hands. We are going to get into it now, then, David. So let's start. I suppose you know. And I obviously preface this at the beginning. There's two really significant objections about outsourcing, and outsourcing really riles a certain section of society, and I suppose a lot of society where if you know people are scared of change if nothing else you know and going from a yep. localized job market to a globalized job market denotes really significant change in how society is structured and then there is them and us you know before it was just us and now there's those strange foreigners uh you know in the mix <laughs> that we have to consider there's all these sort of tribal things there's fear of change but change is absolutely inevitable and change is happening. And with technology and globalization, it's certainly happening at an incredible pace. So the objections about outsourcing is that, uh, you know, and it's quite vocal, is that um, onshore people are losing their jobs. And that's because onshore people have a great salary, great lifestyle, and they um, have rights to that. Uh, and now that life's, uh, lifestyle and those careers and those jobs and that security is being taken away because someone over the other side of the world is happy to do that job for 10% of what they are getting. Now, where is the, the defense for that, David, would you suggest? Right. Um, so, I mean, you know, some we can sometimes categorize that and, and, and be a bit derisive of it because obviously you and I don't really share that perspective. Um, but you can also, I guess, have some sympathy for people that are disrupted by, uh, by globalization and offshoring. So, I mean, it, it's important to recognize that there is sometimes some real pain felt um, when, you know, people that have done a certain job for all their lives, suddenly that job no longer seems to be viable where they live. Um, and, you know, they're left without that security. So I do have sympathy for people there. Um, but getting back to the, I guess, the implications behind that objection to outsourcing, it's kind of that um, if you're running a business and employing people, it's implying that you have certain obligations or duties um, to hire people from your own country or your own nation state. Um, and I would question where that comes from. Um, and why that would be, why you would have any such duty. And if I get back to uh, the objectivist framework we were talking about, I mentioned how um, to objectivism, what matters in ethics is the individual, uh, the individual's flourishing um, rather than any group. So objectivism doesn't say, oh, well, you know, the nation's more important than the individual. So the, the individual has to make sacrifices out of patriotism to his nation. Objectivism doesn't say that. It says, no, the individual's life is an end in itself. And if you're an individual running a business and that business or you're a group of individuals running a business, then you can think of that business as kind of like an individual. It's a, it's a group of people that have got together voluntarily and created an entity. Um, and the purpose of that entity is to enhance their own lives and to flourish. Um, so there's no there's no sort of unstated um, default duty towards, um, for example, hiring people from your own country if that doesn't necessarily suit the needs of your business. Um, your business should be pursuing its own objectives, and your business should be flourishing. Um, when you evaluate what to do with your business, what suppliers you have, you know, what products you're going to release, who you're going to hire, um, the kind of things you need to assess are what is going to improve my business. Um, and if you're looking at comparing in the outsourcing context, for example, call center agents, let's use that as a simple example, um, there are legitimate reasons why you might favour onshore people. Um, if your customer base is Australian, for example, you might say, well, um, you know, uh, labour from the Philippines or India or South Africa is great, 
but those people are not as culturally attuned to my customer base. And so when I talk to them on, when they talk to our customers on the phone, they won't be able to pick up quite the same cues and they won't give quite an experience. And I think the experience that an onshore person is going to give to my customer base is going to be better. So for that reason, I might choose to keep onshore. Um, and that in itself is not an illegitimate decision to make, but you have to evaluate for yourself how much is that worth? How much more am I willing to pay in order to give that experience to my customers? Uh, and that's where people often choose outsourcing. Um, with, but it's with, perfectly- any, with any picture, though, and sorry to interrupt, with any mm. picture, though, there's there's never one clear motivator, is there? Now, even the, the diehard objectivist who is just in it for themselves, you know, maybe they want their business to prosper, but also they probably have self-interest in seeing their local economy and society and neighborhood prosper as well you know so could they be torn that you know sure they've got a healthy business but society around them is is collapsing because everyone's losing their jobs and their kids won't have a good economy to grow up in yeah that's a really interesting point um first of all i mean the um and i was planning to get to that um the notion of the of the individualist only being in it in it for himself um, which is common and perhaps understandable is a, is a narrow uh, understanding of what individualism means. Um, there's a, it's, it is not a, um, it is not a, an atomistic antagonistic idea where it's every individual against the world. Um, the other point I would make there is, yeah, I mean, that could be a legitimate reason. Like, I mean, um, to put it in a, in a, in a narrower kind of example, like in, in my local village um, where I live, my local uh, community, um, there used to be a, um, a delicatessen um, that served really great European cured meats and so forth. And I really, I really liked it, but it was kind of expensive. And, um, but I liked having it just around the corner somewhere I could actually go. It was like a location where you could go and hang out and it just improved the general caliber. It just made the neighborhood a nicer place. And, you know, I had to um, weigh that up versus much cheaper options to get the same products or similar products where I could order them from elsewhere or I could go, you know, into the, the local sort of CBD area and get it. And I weighed those two things up and I said, no, that the overall value that this local corner shop delicatessen gives to me um, outweighs the savings I could get by getting the product um, elsewhere. Um, but that is effectively a, a very individualistic decision. I mean, I see that as a value. I see the community as a value. Um, so for effectively, you could argue selfish reasons. Um, in that case, I, I chose to continue frequenting the local delicatessen. Unfortunately, my, my customer alone was not enough, so it closed down. Um, but, you know, I did my best. So you could expand that um, into the context of, of your, you know, your local economy and hiring and so forth. And that potentially could be a, a legitimate reason for doing it. But again, that would not be based on any sense of duty. That would be based on an idea that overall um, – it's going to lead to an outcome that's more desirable for you if you continue to support local industry. But there's counter arguments to that. One, again, how much more are you willing to, to, to pay, assuming that's going to be a more expensive option for you? And the other thing is, are you really supporting your country um, by, you know, or supporting your fellow people in your country by keeping them and you know, probably make you know, spending more than you would otherwise to keep them in a role when, in fact, um, that role could be done more cost-effectively elsewhere, freeing them up, freeing up your local people as a resource to do other things, to um, deploy their labour in more effective ways. Um, that's actually another way of looking about it. People don't just lose a job and never do anything else. Um, they upskill. They find other things to do. Um, we used to have massive amounts of unskilled labour um, you know, in, in, in relatively rich Western countries, and then gradually it becomes cost-effective to move it elsewhere in certain contexts. People upskill and they find different things to do that actually produce more value. Um, you know, the knowledge economy and, and different ways of doing things, um, you know, different roles. I mean, it's the economy is much more dynamic than that. So, I mean, I don't actually think even from an economic perspective, you're necessarily doing a service to people onshore by keeping them in those roles when their own time could be freed up doing other things. And I suppose um, that's the nub of the argument, isn't it? You know, and people don't necessarily have to agree with this, but if there's a hypothetical argument that 
someone onshore, well, let's say the, the same job can be done offshore to the same quality for significantly less cost. You know, should the business or business owner do that, keep it onshore just for the sake of protecting someone's job, you know, and then are they doing that for reasons that are not relevant to the efficiency of the role? They're doing that for some sort of greater motivation, you know, to save the nation or to save yeah. that particular personal job. And then the concern is that long term, you know, sure, the individual person can decide that they're going to keep this job on for one year or five years. But eventually, the you would assume that the sort of the, the cheaper, better option would win over the medium to long term, yeah? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, and, and there's even an argument that even if the, I mean, it's obviously it's impossible to measure this exactly, but even if the quality offshore is not quite the same, even if the quality is only, you know, 90%, <laughs> there's still an argument that might be a better allocation of resources to get it done offshore. Um, you know, I remember, um, I think Friedrich Hayek, um, who Ayn Rand wasn't a fan, but he was a, um, a famous economist in the 20th century, he kind of described, you know, like if you're a businessman and um, you could probably do your own laundry, maybe you're really efficient and great at doing everything, you know, and so you could do your own household chores yourself and you'd do a better job than anybody you could pay to do your household chores, um, but it would take half your morning. You know, but nonetheless, that would be the best possible quality outcome you get if you did it yourself. Is that still an economical way of doing it? And you'd say no, because the four hours that I spend in my morning doing that, um, I could devote towards much more productive enterprises. So I'll get somebody else to do that, um, and I will compensate them for that, and I won't get quite the same quality. But on balance, I'm much better off spending that four hours doing something else. Um, and I, I think you could sort of extend those kind of analogies to the context you're describing, you know. Um, it, it may be, for argument's sake, that an onshore customer support agent can provide an experience that that offshore will never reach. Let's just accept that for argument's sake. I don't know if it's true. Um, that still doesn't mean you should choose that option. You have to weigh up costs and benefits. Um, and that's what companies do all the time. Um, I mean, I think... Just sort of getting back to it, I mean, the, the notion that I think objectivism would challenge is this idea of a duty. You know? If you can make a genuine case um, that onshore is, is in your interest and your broader interest, and that could include wanting to, you know, wanting to support a certain flourishing community where you are, I mean, whether that's right or wrong, objectively, that's, you know, that's a legitimate sort of position to take. I think what I would challenge is this idea that whether it's in your interests or not, you have a duty. Uh, you have a duty to serve your nation by keeping these people hired locally. Um, objectivism would reject that because that's basically saying that, um, that you run your business for other people, um, which in fact, um, you don't and you shouldn't. Objectivism, um, as I mentioned, is focused on individuals. And another really important concept is what we call the trader principle which means that we're all individuals and being an individualist doesn't just mean you want individual freedom for yourself. It's, it means that you recognize and respect that in all other individuals. You see them as sovereign beings as well who have their own interests um, and who effectively owe you nothing. Um, and you interact with them as traders and traders exchange values, right? They come together and they say, I've got something that's of value to you. You've got something that's of value to me. Let's put those together and exchange them, and then we'll both come out of that arrangement better off in our own judgment. Um, ultimately, we'll create more value together. It's not a zero-sum world that we live in. Uh, economists talk about the double thank you, right? In exchange, when it's trade, it's like both sides say thank you to each other because both sides are doing something for each other, and both sides view that exchange as profitable to them. Um, and so, in objectivism, when you're looking at an employment relationship, it's the same. Right, um, you don't hire someone as some kind of a social service to them or to the nation. You hire them because they have something that is of value to you, and they don't work for you because they're devoted to building your business, or they think that you know they have a duty to build outsourcing or online retail businesses. They work for you because they see that as being in their interest, and they have something to gain from it. And you come together and you create value. Um, that's the approach that I think should be applied to all these questions, including employment. So that doesn't that doesn't really allow for this notion of a duty. 
Um, what are your thoughts and, and on, a, on the sort of expanding obligations of a, of a company, though? You know, for a long time, it was thought that a company's only obligations are to its shareholders and to generate mm. profit. And now society is sort of demanding that businesses not only consider their shareholders, but they consider all of the stakeholders within that business environment. And not only that, you, you know, they have to consider the environment because you're never directly trading with the environment but indirectly we are trading with it all the time you know historically we've never been able to account for pollution and now they are sort of figuring out some sort of metrics and measurements where if you're emitting pollution and you're destroying the environment then there is a cost to that and then so they're putting in effectively a trade relationship with that silent party and then also they're saying, well, it's not only for today, you know, your business impacts, your business decisions impact future generations. And then so if there is a deleterious effect on future generations, then maybe you should be taxed or charged for that in today's decision. So is it is it in a simplified model, there is basically like the customer and the individual and the owner, but in a in a probably more complex and real life model, there's actually tens of thousands of considerations that really as a human, we're not really able to consider all of those uh, factors. Yeah, but I mean, that's absolutely um, an issue of profound concern. Um, and it's a, um, figuring out a model to uh, account for what you describe as incredibly important and obviously not something on which I claim to have any great insider expertise. Um, but what I would say is that, you know, when you've got an interaction of two parties, if those, if the interaction of those two parties imposes a cost on a third party, that's a legitimate cost that needs to be accounted for. Um, exactly how you do that, how you structure that, how you recognize that probably is, is beyond the scope of this discussion. Um, but objectivism believes in property rights. And for example, if you pollute someone else's property um, as, a, as a consequence of something you're doing, um, yeah, and they're not part of privy to any kind of transaction with you, but it's just a consequence, then you have harmed them. Um, and they legitimately have a grievance against you. And that's something that needs to be addressed. Um, so, you know, objectivism doesn't say, well, you know, bugger any consequences. Um, you know, if if rivers get polluted and, and forests get destroyed, that doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. No, absolutely. Um, that's legitimate damage being done to um, something that's of value. So objectivism is not anti-environment, but there are different ways that you can um, you can structure and recognize that. Uh, so it's probably, probably recognizing who the parties are and the costs to them and the benefits to them. And, and it's, it's kind of creating a framework for... Uh, for making these decisions, basically, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, and but again, it's 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 finding one that is um, consistent with the notion of property rights and the notion of uh, individual rights. Uh, and, and yeah, there are ways to do that. Um, but it certainly doesn't follow from anything I've described that that I or or people that share my kind of philosophy have a disdain for the environment or for the impact on other people. Um, not the case at all. And, you know, when there is quantifiable impact, there absolutely must be a way. Um, I guess, you know, economists talk about the negative externalities. There has to be a way to account for those. Mm. I won't go into all the details, you know, is it carbon trading schemes and, and things like that? Well, no, in my opinion, no. <laughs> but um, it doesn't follow that. I don't see that as an issue that has to be addressed. And so moving back to more the sort of commercial, I suppose, application of what we're talking about and the issue of losing jobs, it is really happening, you know, and I see a future where there will be a globalised uh, employment workforce and people will sort of ultimately never hire locally, they will hire the best talent globally based on the best yes. value, you know, and whether that is uh, 10 or 50 years away, it will definitely happen. We will have a globalized workforce that only 20 years ago was just, you know, it would have been sort of farcical to consider. Now, uh, whether that is a good thing or bad thing, I think it's a completely new point, but it, it will happen. But it is definitely the case in the transition there are going to be winners and losers. Now, the poor people in the world that are only on $100 a month right now are definitely going to benefit, whereas the wealthy wage earners in the world are definitely going to suffer 
during that transition over the next sort of 10 to 40 years. Now, would you see that as an acknowledged cost on society that businesses should sort of work to prevent? Or is that just, um, you know, a sort of cost of doing business and it's the natural flow of the tide and then so that is life? I would say that the arrangement we have now where we have these um, these imbalances, you know, where people in some countries earn massive amounts and others don't, is a product of, of barriers that mankind has raised. Um, the reality is we don't have mobility of labour in the world. <laughs> and so mm. we're all kind of kept in these holding pens, um, you know, which we call borders and countries. And I'm not, this is not an argument against having government and, and borders and things. Um, but by doing it that way and so by preventing people from being able to immigrate and work, you know, by having all these immigration rules and quotas and laws and everything, we create this kind of environment where these imbalances exist. Um, and then, yeah, there are certain winners and then there are a heck of a lot of losers out of that. Um, but I don't think it's a particularly healthy or sustainable situation where you owe your prosperity to the fact that you're lucky enough to be ring-fenced in a rich country. Um, that doesn't yeah. seem like... It's a, very a, much a lottery, isn't it? You know, if you're born yeah. in the US, then you are lucky and prosperous, whereas if you're born in a in a developing world, then you're going to struggle and not be able to pay for healthcare. Exactly, you know, and so um, I think that, you know, we're in the situation where there are these advantages and, I mean, I, I guess arguably outsourcing takes advantage of it too because you've got these people that are through no fault of outsourcing or their own ring-fenced in low-income countries, uh, low-wage countries where they're skilled and they can offer wages. And those wages are lower than they probably what they would be if you had mobility of labour, right? So um, we do the best we can out of that. Um, I think we, what outsourcing does um, is gives opportunity to those people and helps them helps them grow and build and develop more skills and improve their income potential. So I think it's good. Outsourcing didn't create that situation. But again, it is a situation that has been created by the the system of borders and very limited restricted mobility of labor that we have. Um, so I do think it would be a good thing um, to effectively allow greater labor mobility and have a globalized workforce because it just doesn't make sense if you're a business looking for a labor or you're a potential employee looking for an employer that you have to confine yourself to these barriers that have been erected for whatever reason. Um, you should go out and seek the best talent you could find. What argument is there that you have a duty to choose that talent out of the limited pool um, in the local place where you are? It just doesn't make sense. Any more than it makes sense if you're looking for supplies, you know, um, if you're looking for raw materials, if you're manufacturing. Why must you only seek raw materials within the borders that you exist? Um, I don't see any economic argument for it, really, or any moral argument. Um, so... The state of affairs you describe a globalized workforce, I think, would be a very good thing, and ultimately a good thing for those short-term quote losers in that arrangement um, who may see their wages go down. I think the overall economic activity and the growth and the, and the creation of value that would come out of that environment would benefit everyone, and um, before long, outweigh whatever temporary, you know, loss of loss of income some of those people had. I and think that's it would ultimately good, uh, be. That's probably a good segue into the second objection about outsourcing. But before that, I just want to make an observation really that, you know, people have, since the beginning of offshoring, which is maybe 20, 30 years in its full force, people have been concerned about job loss. Uh, and also within that time, you know, we've had a huge movement towards uh, software and robotics and automation of every process, whether it's in manufacturing and car making um, and uh, you know, everything. And also, of course, software is is eating the world. So there's less people having to do things manually. Uh, so there's this incredible movement towards automation and robotics and offshoring. Yet, uh, unemployment levels are still at record lows, you know, certainly before COVID yep. in the uh, mature uh, uh, um, world, you know, the, the wealthy world, uh, employment levels are at record lows. And um, people aren't able to get the staff that they need. So it seems that the argument of, you know, these people are taking our jobs, well, after 30 years, there's no evidence of that happening, you know? No, I mean, it, there are some people for whom the, the kind of transitions you describe are harder than others. Like, I, it's important not to deny that, you know? Um, 
we're all born in different circumstances, you know, and we get different edu- levels of education, we have different opportunities, we live in different places, all sorts of factors are there. And so there's no doubt that for some people um, who lose their job as a result of globalization or automation, to give two examples, um, go through a heck of a lot of difficulty and pain um, and struggle. So, I mean, I, I sort of acknowledge that. Um, but to your point, when you look at it on an overall level, it's very hard to make the case. In fact, I would agree with you that it's it's largely impossible that we're in a worse off position um, because of those things like automation, because what they do is they free us up to do better and more interesting things with our labor and with our minds and with our time. Um, and humans are extraordinary entities. Um, We've got amazing imagination and agility and skill and um, adaptability. And we figure out productive uses of our time um, once we get our labor freed up. And the process of freeing up labor so that we freeing up our time so we can apply it more productively is not something that began with globalization or even automation. (laughs) It's something that's been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And we can really just view that as part of that same process. Good. Well, I'm not sure if we've solved that, but certainly we've uh, spent time talking about it. Let's go on to number two. And I'm not sure actually if this is uh, the two sides of the same coin or whether it is a completely different argument. So let's let's see how it goes. But the the next you know significant objection to outsourcing is that outsourcing is unfair. It exploits the cheap labour abroad, and it effectively pays people an amount under what should be a reasonable amount for work to be done. What are your, what are your thoughts on that, David? Yeah. I suppose initially well, it's, it's kind of, do you want to illustrate that? Do you want to paint that scene? What does that really mean? Okay. Um, well, I'll have a go at painting it. Um, well, I guess the, the idea is that um, a person, as this argument goes, ought to or should receive um, – a salary or compensation um, no less than a certain minimum that's stipulated. And that minimum should be what what we regard as um, a healthy level of compensation in order that would allow them to live what we regard as a dignified, decent life, um, sometimes called a, a living wage. Um, so if someone in the West is getting paid five grand a month to do this job, then that should be the baseline. If if you're able to get someone in the Philippines to do it for five hundred a month, then well, then then that's that five hundred. As this argument go, that's an obscenely low amount. Um, certainly, it's a lot lower than the five thousand you'd have to pay the person in um, in the West. But also, you might argue, I guess, t- to be try and be fair to this argument, they would say no. It's more than that. It's about the context of the Philippines as well. What kind of a life can a person have on that um, on that five hundred? I think it's not a bad life on five hundred. But you know. If you take it low, whatever it else, you know, it's like, you know, are they able? Can they afford to feed their family? You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, how much do they have left? Can they afford insurance? Can they afford this? Can they afford that? And I suppose and they the would issue look at- is, is because they're assessing that $500 based on that person having to exist in the society of the $5,000 a month person. You know, and and it's not you're not really comparing like for like, are you? But then is, no, is well, it right part that of, you part of the issue, that, that person yeah. should not be... You know, maybe that person earning five hundred should get the five thousand, so they can build themselves a better life. Well, I think so, some. So there's two versions of this argument. One would be that it's black and white. No matter where they are in the world, they should earn the five thousand. I think that's the the easier to demolish of the two arguments. <laughs> I think that makes no sense whatsoever. Um, I mean, if you if you're going to pay five thousand to somebody. Um, to somebody offshore, why would you do that? Why would you go to the cost of um, of moving your operations offshore and and you know undertake the obvious you know work that goes into being offshore when you're going to pay them the same as what you would pay them in um, onshore? I mean, it's it's really just a kind of a COVID argument of saying you should only hire people onshore. Um, but a slightly more sophisticated version would be no, maybe you don't need to pay them five thousand, 
Um, but in the context of the Philippines, maybe the amount you're paying them um, and the lifestyle that that corresponds to, the, the purchasing power of that amount in the Philippines is lower than what we think is acceptable, lower than what we think is a dignified kind of a life. You know, this person's living in a cramped apartment. This, this isn't necessarily true of any particular case I'm talking about, not someone I hire, but I'm just trying to illustrate an example that might make it more vivid. You know, this person's living in a cramped apartment. Um, they have no leisure time. You know, they're working long hours. Um, you know, they can afford food on the table, but very little. They can't afford extras in life. They can't afford things that are very useful, like a good education, et cetera, on that particular salary. So they would argue that's what's obscene about it. It's not compared to um, the onshore. It's simply in the Philippine context. Um, you can get away with paying that, and we think that's too low. And, um, and not wanting to add too much fuel to the fire, but there are examples, you know, the uh, famous iPhone makers, um, people were jumping out of buildings because conditions were so bad and a lot of the fast fashion uh, manufacturing, you know, those are in pretty terrible conditions reportedly and there's fires and unsafe environments. So there are arguments that, you know, people aren't doing enough for the for the workers. No, well, that's, that's right. I mean, it's, it's important to... Um it's important to address that. Uh, and you mentioned earlier that um, you mentioned earlier that this might be the flip side of the same coin, and in a sense it is, but it also doesn't mean it's not a good thing to to address. Um, I would go back to the trader principle, and I would say that um, an employment relationship between an employer and employee is not some kind of um, complicated social interaction that involves all sort of duties on both parts and as part of building a nation or something. It's ultimately two individual sovereign individuals who both enter into an engagement. They both choose to transact because they both believe that that transaction is going to create value and give benefit to them. They make their own independent judgment that by doing this job, I'm going to move from a worse situation to a better one. Um, both sides come into that. They don't do it on either side as a matter of charity. Um, the the outsourcing employer does not hire that person as an act of charity for them so that they you know, can support their family. They do it because they believe that person's got labor to offer. That's of value. Just as the employee doesn't work for the company because they feel they have a duty to build that company and you know, charitably you know, give their labor to that company to build it. No, both parties enter into it for what we would call rational self-interest. And, and it's, it's a beneficial relationship. Um, and that's why they do it. And so in... In a poor country, um, you know, the standards of living may be a lot lower than what you would expect, um, than what you would regard as, as normal in the West. Um, but there are still various levels, you know, there's still various degrees within that. Um, and if you're somebody that's come from a relatively low income background, um, you've been able to get an education and there's a job offering 500 bucks a month. Um, that's a lot of money and that's a great opportunity for you to build up out of your current situation and get yourself into a better one and gradually grow. Um, and so that's why they choose to do it. Outsourcing didn't create the conditions where there's poverty. Outsourcing didn't create the conditions where there's um, you know, comparatively low wages. Outsourcing comes into that and says, right, these people um, have something of value to offer to us um, and we have something of value to offer to them, so let's work together and create something. And so that's what happens. And then over time, through a genuine typical kind of employment relationship with a good company, that person develops skills and gradually they save and they earn more. Um, everybody that I hire, um, you know, if they've been with me for a few years, their salary has gone up considerably because over that time, they've developed great skills and they've increased the value they can offer. And I, I believe quite sincerely that their lives have improved significantly as well. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's all great to say this is some form of exploitation, but in fact, you're going into a situation and you're giving somebody an opportunity to improve and to move up. Uh, and you don't do it out of charity. You do it because it's beneficial to you and they engage in it too, because it's beneficial to them. Um, it's the trader principle, the double thank you. And that's actually a lot more sustainable than trying to base something on some idea of duty or charity. Um, and through self-interest. It's an economic stepping stone then, isn't it? And, and often Correct. in these transitions, the individual players might not benefit, but it, it, the society, well, and this is interesting, I suppose, with objectivism. If you zoom in, you know, the original people that were doing the outsourcing, they don't get all of the benefit of their activities. It's actually their 
offspring, their colleagues, and you know, 25, 40, 50 years down the road as the economy has built, as the uh, employees uh, develop more skills, they then move yes. from you know sort of functional activity into executive level activity. And then like you see in China, they're no longer just the producers, they then actually hold the IP and build the businesses and innovations themselves. Now, Absolutely. all of the benefits of that, those stepping stones don't impact that first individual that takes the relatively low job, but there's incredible sort of cumulative benefits. Yeah? Oh, there is, you know, and that's... Um that's a good thing. Now, of course, um, the, the the individual at the beginning t- taking the job that didn't didn't uh, realize all these later benefits. Again, they didn't do that out of some kind of charitable act, thinking, "Oh well, in three generations' time, things are going to be better." And I'm servicing within the context they were working um, in the context they were living. The job they took, um, at least it should have been, was something that they regarded as advantageous, something that was a giving them an economic stepping stone, an ability to to improve their circumstance. But in the course of that, I guess as you zoom out, that's also contributing to building a, a more flourishing economy and a more active economy. And then over time, that does happen. Over time, just like you know, um, our parents had fewer opportunities than us, <laughs> but they contributed to the economy they were living in and gradually built it. And by the time we came along, there was more. There were more options available to us. Um, there was more wealth around. So exactly, over time, that does build. But again, it's not based on any sense of any sense of duty or any sense of obligation to do something. It's based on people coming together as sovereign individuals um, and treating each other as traders um, and creating value together. And I suppose that that is like a win-win relationship. And that's, you know, I suppose quite exactly. cliche by now, but win-win also really refers to the fact that both people have their self-interest met in that transaction. Correct. We don't live in a zero-sum world. Um, most interactions are ones where both parties come off better, um, if it's genuine trade, right? Um, that doesn't happen when when theft occurs, um, but when two parties independently come together, um, be they employer and employee, or whether it's a purchase arrangement or whatever it is, um, ultimately both parties come out of, out of that in a better position to where they were previously. That's why they do it. Um, so it might be a cliche, but it is 100% win-win. Um, and that's the beauty of trade. And that one, it, it seems, have we solved that one? Have we solved that objection? Then it seems a little bit too easy. But in, I think when you're actually in the society, you know, and it's it's kind of ironic, like when when you're living in the US, it's easy to go, yeah, but $500 just isn't enough. You know, it can't be. And then when you actually live in the society, you know, you and I live in the Philippines and it is a good salary and you see people happily earning that salary, building a good life off that salary and excited about the career they can build off of that salary, you know, and you see it. And then so it doesn't, I don't feel like I'm faking it and I don't feel like there's any use or abuse of the Filipino workforce. Yeah, I see it as an amazing sort of economic stimulant for the individual and the society. Um, a, a position that... Um Objectivists like myself often find ourselves in is we'll be approaching a problem where the objection we're addressing is both wrong economically and philosophically. <laughs> um, yeah. um, and, you know, it's, well, like, um, for example, um, minimum wage laws. They'll say, oh, minimum wages, uh, we need minimum wages because paying too much is, is, is bad for people um, and it's bad for society. Um, you know, you're going to create poverty doing it that way. And we look at that and say, well, um, actually, no. Um, by preventing people from um, working at a market, by preventing people from being able to offer a market wage, um, we are basically creating unemployment because if, 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 someone, if the market level of someone's wage is below what's stipulated as the minimum wage, employers just won't hire them because they don't regard it as them as providing adequate value. So you create unemployment and you actually create a worser economic situation. Um, but that's an economic approach. So you're, you're attacking the economic side of it. Um, and you could make the same principles with outsourcing, just as you were saying there. You're saying, well, actually, you're claiming that this is exploiting these employees and, and it's creating a terrible environment. But in fact, I see with my own eyes that it's not, that in fact, we're, we're lifting them up and that we're, they're, with the money we pay, they're able to have very fulfilling lives and they're able to... Um, 
build themselves up and we're seeing economic flourishing here and it's great. Um, but there's an underlying philosophical argument there, which is that, okay, um, me doing outsourcing would only be justified um, if everything I've said there is true. The idea that um, it ultimately implies is that you have a duty to make sure that the employees are having a flourishing, wonderful life. If, if that's not the case, then you shouldn't be doing it. And objectivism would question that and say, um, no, the reason that you engage in business is because you see it as credit is providing value for yourself as an individual. Um, other individuals who you recognize as sovereign individuals, they benefit from that and that's fantastic, but that's not the reason you do it. Um, and you don't have to justify what you do on that basis. I guess that's the point I'm making. You don't have to justify outsourcing on the basis of the fact that outsourced employees are flourishing. You don't have to do that. They are, and that's a great economic consequence of what you're doing. Um, but that's not the justification. You don't have to defend yourself on that basis, I think is the point I'm making. I suppose the meta point that there follow. is that objectivism sees the benefit of following your own individual motivation because every time you you actually say that, you know, just follow your own individual uh, what drives or motivation or interests, every, just follow your own interests, it, it almost makes me cringe a little bit because we're, we're taught to, you know, you, you, you have to actually look out for everyone in society. But I suppose the meta motivation of objectivism is that if you look after your own self-interest then ultimately and and you don't harm other people but, and then everything will work out for the better like it will actually create a better society for everyone yeah i mean individualism doesn't imply being a bastard <laughs> it doesn't imply not caring about other people um it simply implies that the the purpose of your life is to flourish as an individual and to do that properly um as a, as a rational human being. It's about what's called rational self-interest. Um, it doesn't just mean do whatever you want. It doesn't just mean, you know, if you want to be a complete deadbeat um, who lies on the couch all day smoking drugs and reading comic books, you should do that. They would say, well, no, that's not a flourishing individual. Um, that's a very poor use of your time. Um, and that's a very poor excuse of an individual. Somebody that is active and being productive and, and interacting and having relationships, that's a healthy human being and you should seek to flourish there. Um, and you view all other individuals just like yourself as people that are there to flourish. And together, you can make beautiful things. You know, you, you have important relationships. You have friendships that matter. Um, you have professional race relationships um, that are based on good faith um, and, you know, mutual respect. Um, all of those things are consistent with individualism. Um, and it does tend to create a better society for everybody. Um, so often the mistake is to confuse um, an individualistic philosophy with one that advocates a very narrow, um, malevolent, um, antagonistic, small-minded libertinism. Um, that's not what true individualism is. Um, what individualism rejects is the notion that you have a duty to serve others. Mm. So I hope that answered your point there. Got it. I think it does. I think it does. And I want to bring it. Uh, let's let's close off this argument. One uh, one observation I, I see uh, actually of Australia, and I'm not sure why I'm using this as an example, but of course we've both spent significant time there. Is that you know Australia has historically always been it's an island and it's a relatively isolated island, and it's always had very very strict immigration policy, and um, so it has been very strict on who comes into the country and, and not many people do get into the country. As a result, the salaries in the country and the minimum wage even, are it's, it's incredibly expensive and you can't afford to hire people now to, to run pubs and bars and to work yep. in McDonald's and things like that. And so they've somewhat created a, a cross for their own back. And But ironically... You know, the society, like people, people's own self-interest, they try and find ways around this and technology has somewhat come to the rescue in that people can now work online. So it, it's still, you know, banned for uh, freedom of movement. Like people can't just go into Australia whenever they like. 
um, right. but you can hire someone from the Philippines. And I, I find it quite ironic that Australia is actually pretty advanced in terms of their adoption of outsourcing and yeah. their relationship with the Philippines. And maybe that is some sort of maybe subconscious kickback to the fact that the labor motil- mobility is so restricted in Australia that society has had to find the release valve. And as a result, they've all gone online. And now, you know, half of, half the Australian businesses are employing people from the Philippines. Now, the yeah. Filipinos are never allowed to travel to Australia, but for all intents and purposes, they're now a part of the Australian economy. Absolutely. I think that's that's so true. Um, it's so insightful. Um, it's I think um, necessity, I guess, begets the the ingenuity and the, and the drive to do more of this um, because it's not just that, you know, you might be, in some cases, you might be able to hire onshore labour, but a lot of the time and increasingly, in fact, probably most of the time, it's not a question of whether you should um, outsource. It's a question of whether of whether you can afford not to. Um, and a lot of jobs simply don't exist in Australia because they've been priced out. They've become too expensive for the very reasons you describe. Um, a lot of businesses would not be able to afford to offer a lot of these services onshore in Australia because the labour costs would be too high. And so that's economic activity that doesn't happen. Um, and so people obviously then, because of that, are motivated to look farther abroad and look at other solutions, new technology. And that absolutely is why outsourcing is growing so healthily in Australia. Um, and ultimately, that benefits Australia. It benefits people in Australia because it's more economic activity. It's more happening. Um, so it's a very good thing. Um, but again, to your point, it's often driven by these constraints that have been put in place by societies and governments, um, particularly borders and a lack of labour mobility. Mm-hmm. It would be interesting to see, you know, as technology becomes... I suppose, default in terms of how we communicate and how we effectively by proxy travel and our geography, then whether the borders will change, you know, whether borders will long, will, will they become irrelevant to in terms of how you work and then they're just sort of old vestiges of kind of the club you belong to because yeah. borders aren't going to be able to contain the labour movement anymore, are they? You know, because everything's done yeah. online. Well, it's a good point you get to. I mean, it's important to point out that um, while I and, and objectivists advocate small government, um, we're not anti-government as such. We think government has an important role. There are some legitimate roles for borders. I think security is an important um, role for borders. You want borders to keep out um, bad people and criminals and terrorists and that kind of thing. So I believe there's a legitimate function for having some kind of border control. Um, you know, just as we need government to ensure the rule of law um, and to make sure that we have a safe society. So, um, you know, I think there will always be a case for, for borders of that kind. But borders as, as a means to keep people in economic holding pens um, and to prevent um, labour moving to the places where it is most in demand, I think increasingly that will be, I I think and hope that increasingly that will become a thing of the past, and I think that will be a very good thing. Yeah, fascinating. Well, David, gosh, this has been a good good conversation. I certainly thoroughly enjoyed it, and um, please let us know out there if if it's worked for you guys as well. But um, no, really appreciated this. David, just one observation as well, I think. Of these two arguments, you know, whether they are of the same coin or not, but they're never used by the same person. You know, it's interesting. (laughs) Like the person that is concerned about protecting their own jobs, they're never concerned about the welfare of the, uh, you know, it seems. Uh, They're they're almost sort of polar opposites in terms of uh, self-interest versus the interest of the other person or the other tribe, I suppose. Uh, Interesting. It is an interesting observation, but um, I, I think when you drill it down, they're both basically relying on the same argument, <laughs> just uh, just a slightly different version of it in a different context. Um, but, yeah, you, you're right. It generally is different groups that make each one of them. And it's funny, you know, I, I just see there, there are some things in life that are just completely inevitable, and then I think if you try and resist the movement, you know, like you, you can't resist the tide coming or departing, then... It's it's just a futile battle, and I think if anyone sort of doesn't see the trajectory of globalization, uh, you know, that's been facilitated by technology, then 
you know, where where is it going to lead? However, there are a lot of commentators that have talked about increasing nationalization because of what's happening with China and uh, the shockwaves and things that have happened with COVID and uh, national security and supply chain security and things like that. So it could be interesting in terms of that. But certainly we're going to be increasingly more connected as one global world, aren't we? Yeah, look, I don't think it's going to be a smooth ride. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be. Um, as always, you've got competing competing pressures going on, all the things you described, um, and there does seem to have been a shift more towards, you know, nationalism um, and, and less internationalism. And, and in some cases, there might be some legitimate basis behind that. Um, you know, it's, it's a complicated picture going on. Um, but I, I guess just to two points, one... Um, I think that the fundamentals of supply and demand and economics are so strongly behind this. And I do believe fundamentally and sincerely um, that outsourcing is creating a better world and creating a more productive and more flourishing world. I think those fundamental forces will ultimately lead to a more globalized society, which I think is great. Um, and the other point I would make is that um, if I can just make a plug for philosophy, Mm. Um, I may not have done a particularly good job of um, laying it out in this particular podcast, um, but I think that moral arguments are so important in these kind of debates. We can't just rely on economics. Um, you know, we can't just rely on sort of saying, well, whether you like it or not, it's happening. Um, I think if you want to win hearts and minds, you need to look into the principles of the thing. Um, and that can sometimes be a lot harder, um, but I think it, I think it yields better results. Um, ultimately, um, than just relying on numbers and figures and that kind of thing. So um, anyone that's interested in, in outsourcing, I really encourage them to, to think about it from a philosophical perspective and go and seek out philosophical views on it um, because it's a rewarding experience. And I think it will ultimately, for those of us that are advocating and fighting for outsourcing, it will arm us with more tools than just purely having economic arguments. Fantastic. Great place to leave it. Thank you so much, David. And of course, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, and you do actually run some sort of Ayn Rand society. I do. So yeah. tell, us, um, tell us how they can get in touch and, and how they can get more involved. Ayn.ph, so that's A-Y-N-R-A-N-D.ph for the Philippines, will take you to the uh, Objectivist Club of the Philippines, which I run. Um, we've got a modest kind of website. We do a few events. Um, so you'll learn a little bit. You can connect with me if you're interested. I, I help people in the Philippines get hold of Ayn Rand books sometimes because they can be tricky. But you'll also find a, a page of references, and so I've got links to various um online sources like the Ayn Rand Institute and others with a wealth of material. So if you're interested in exploring more, um, jump over to ayrand.ph and um, feel free to reach out to me or have a look about what's on there. There's a fairly big list of links to different sites which have a whole wealth of information. That's so cool, David. And how can they get in touch with you if, if you want anyone to reach out? Um, You'll find me on LinkedIn. I think I'm the only David Pritchard in the Philippines um, or Google David Pritchard, the Nile, or there is a form on the Ayn Rand PH website where you can get hold of me. Great. And I'll put all of those links in the show notes. Thank yeah. you so much, David. Thank you, Derek. And if anyone has been horribly offended by anything I've said here and found it terribly controversial, um, bear in mind that I also have a few other episodes with you where we don't get anywhere near as controversial and we just talk about the outsourcing experience. <laughs> That's uh, we, available to people They can never go well. back once they've listened to this, David, I'm sure. <laughs> That's true. Go backwards. But uh, no, fantastic. Thank you, David. And, and please, everyone, give us, uh, give us feedback. Let us know what you're thinking. That was David Pritchard. He is the country manager of the Nile Group Philippines. If you want to get in touch with uh, David, go to the show notes. All of the links are in there. Go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And if you want to ask us any questions, then just drop us an email to ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.